Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and our guest today is Steve O'Connor, who has very graciously agreed to do this podcast right before the Independence Day weekend here in the U.S., I'm super grateful to have him on today. Steve, welcome. How are you? Christian, thanks. Thanks for uh, for having me. Um, I'm great, actually. Uh, these are weird and unusual times, and we've all got stories to tell about that. But, you know, we're we're making the best of it here in uh, in Naperville, Illinois, where where I live now. Naperville, Illinois. It sounds a lot like my last name, Napier, but it's not uh, not related, I don't think. Could be a distant cousin, maybe. Perhaps, perhaps. Well, what takes you to Illinois? You know, Chicago was home before Salt Lake, um, which was a, a fabulous departure just for a couple of years, but uh, decided to come back here when we were kind of getting our family started and then life took hold. Um, I've got a daughter who just turned 16. Wow. And, um, you know, work. I've had a couple of different career moves post games, and that's keeping me very busy. And that's what I'm doing here in the Chicago area. I want to come to work in a moment. But before that, you mentioned you had a 16 year old daughter. Mm. How is that in the era of COVID? You know, that's the hardest part about COVID um, is that the kids only have so many of those high school years and sports teams and graduations. And, you know, she had to wait a couple of months to get her driver's license because nothing was open and you couldn't take driver's ed. So um, I feel bad for the kids, um, you know, guys like me pushing 50, one year is kind of the same as the next. But, um, you know, the high school seniors who didn't get their last sports season or maybe a graduation, um, you know, my daughter missed a whole year of high school sports. And that's what's hard. So I'm really looking forward to hopefully things getting back to normal as quickly as possible, mostly for her. I totally agree. I hope that things return to normal or whatever normal is. But most importantly, I think that the children need to be back in school because of all of the social interaction and also the learning and the education that they get there, which is very difficult to replicate uh, remotely. So I really hope for the sake of our children that they can have a quote unquote normal education in this uh, upcoming school year. Same. Yes. So fingers crossed that the kids will be back in school in the fall. Agreed. Now, uh, back to the professional pursuits. Uh, you mentioned you're working on some things there. Uh, what are you doing these days? Couldn't be more different than games, probably. Um, I am an executive in a small commercial finance company here in Chicago, which is a unique challenge during the COVID time when uh, a lot of businesses that are our customers are forced to close. But it's still a good business. It's something I've been working on for the last eight years or so. Um, I did do some you know, I kept a, a little bit in touch with games work after Salt Lake, but I wasn't one of the people who made it a permanent career. Well, I congratulate you on being able to find something outside of that game space. Uh, for me, I've tried a couple of times, but it just never seems to pan out and I get sucked back into the game's uh, orbit, if you will. So congratulations and kudos to you. And you're right. This COVID thing is taking a toll on all kinds of businesses. Uh, and this event space particularly is hard hit. And but there are so many other industries. Hey, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, if the games come back to Utah, you know, maybe some of us with gray hair will reappear. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. I, I hope they come back. The people here love the Olympic Games still. Um, the games have a great legacy in Salt Lake City and in the state of Utah. People are super excited whenever a games comes on television every two years. The Olympic fever reignites here in Salt Lake, and I think it would be a great place to host the games again. 
let's see. Maybe we can get the band back together, as they say. Wouldn't that be great? Okay, well, speaking of great, let's talk about those great Salt Lake 2002 games. We'll hop in the time machine. Why don't you take us back to the 1990s? What were you doing then? And how did you find yourself in Salt Lake City? By happenstance, really, it was it was dumb luck. Um, I was not a games professional. I was not in events. I was not in entertainment. So um, unlike a lot of your other guests who were real pros, by the time Salt Lake came around, I was an amateur. Um, I was working in Chicago. And I was working for a company that was in the two-way radio business, right? So I was in the kind of communications technology end of things. And, you know, I wasn't really happy with the way things were going at work. And um, after some back and forth with, uh, with my employer, I said, one day, that's it. Um, in fact, at the time, you know what it was? I was engaged to be married. And I was working a lot of hours and I was, you know, not available for wedding planning. And uh, my fiance at the time was sort of like, man, are you sure you know what you're doing with this job? It's not making you really happy. And it's, uh, it's kind of a drag for everybody. So I decided that's it. I'm out. And I left and, um, and said, okay, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll find something else for Steve to do. And then in probably a week later, she was downsized out of her company. So there's the two of us happily unemployed. And we thought, let's take some time off. What a great time to take a trip because we don't have any work responsibilities. And we jumped in a plane, bought a last minute flight, went to London. And there we are having a great time in England. Come back home. And there's a message on our answering machine, if you remember those. And I'm trying to remember, it was either Doug or Nick Martin, but somebody from Slock had left this message that said, hey, we got your name because you know somebody who knows somebody. And we're looking for somebody to do some work here at the Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. And I almost fell over because my whole life I had been a huge Olympic fan, especially a winter games fan, complete sucker for all the, you know, all the sort of production that NBC would put on every year and the music and the, and the, the promotion and the videos. It just works on me. I, I completely buy in. I'm not cynical at all about the games. And at that point, this is um, 99 or 2000. For 10 years in a row, my only vacation once a year was to go to Park City and ski. And so here I am with this message on the answering machine going, "Is you're putting me on. This is a joke. You guys want to pay me to come to Salt Lake City and be part of the Olympics? Sign me up. So I was on a plane a couple of days later. I had an interview. Um, I'm trying to remember the story. I think I was in the office, but I was also at Park City Mountain Resort interviewing for a job. <laughs> it just what could be better so uh, in a couple of days i was uh i was signed up that's an amazing story what did your fiance think when you told her hey i might have this opportunity to work on the olympic games she said i'm not moving anywhere cold utah sounds cold and i said no 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 you're gonna like it it's sunny out there all the time um so actually uh she came out of course uh, about a month after i did wound up finding work with the games in accreditation later on uh and the two of us just loved being out there, had a great time. Okay. So you get here to, to, um, you get here to Salt Lake city. What's the role that you're hired to do? Right. So as it was explained to me at the time, this idea of event communications, sort of finding a way to coordinate using 
primarily voice communications across the competition and some non-competition venues was an idea that had been kindled and worked at the Sydney games. And from what I understand with some success, and I think it was really Doug who thought that this was a good concept, but could be improved just like a lot of functions are improved games to games. So I wasn't tasked with inventing anything, but really to take someone else's work and just bring it forward and adapt it for Salt Lake. And if we could try and make it a bit better. Christian, what it was really about was setting up at every venue what they called a VCC, a venue communications center. And it was meant to be sort of that, um, like a coordination space and hub to sort of traffic a lot of the information through. And it was sort of the virtual high ground to where you could have, if not eyes, at least ears over a whole venue and say, okay, this is a place where either we can move information through or the venue managers can physically be and sort of keep their finger on the pulse of things as they moved, maybe at critical points like gates open and and, uh, spectators in and things like that, start of competition. So it was really meant to be that central way to coordinate at each individual venue. And speaking of those venues, were you working in a specific venue or were you working across the venues either before games or during games time? Yeah, that's, you know, I often say that I had I I had one of the best jobs at games because in all the time leading up to the games, remember, I had never done this before, didn't know what I was doing, probably still don't. Um, I was sort of a de facto member of every competition venue team. So I had such a great learning experience because most of the venue general managers had done something before, either a games or a large international event. So in that kind of year of planning and then moving into the venueization process, I was attending all of the team meetings in Salt Lake City, moving on to venues, starting to get our operation onto each individual venue. So um, instead of just being kind of focused on one venue and not having a look at the rest of the games, I got to see everything. I get to sort of participate in the outdoor, the indoor, the snow and the ice, and just have that fun of working with all those great teams. Um, you know, if you were on one venue team, it was such a tight knit group. And, and I, I didn't get that experience, but I sort of had almost an equivalently good experience by being a little bit of a honorary member, I guess, if you will, of all the venue teams. And to me, that was just really exciting. I got to be part of all those great groups. You mentioned that you came into the organizing committee without any previous games experience. You're not the only person that was in that situation. Myself, I, I was I was one of those people. I came in without having any games experience and kind of felt like I just fell into this opportunity to work for this games. And at times it was a bit intimidating, you know, because you're you're talking with people like Doug Arnott or even a Nick Martin, you know, people that have previous games experience. And and sometimes I felt like I I didn't know enough. But at the same time, it was comforting to know that we had people that had that experience and could have a little bit of perspective. What was it like for you working with people, working with people who had previous games experience when you yourself did not? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because that's actually an experience I've drawn on a lot in different places in my career. And I've even used this anecdote in mentoring and teaching other folks as I've gotten older. I remember the moment um, I'd been at the organizing committee several weeks and, you know, I've been thrown into these venue team meetings and the acronyms and I don't understand it. And I don't get the inside jokes about, you know, someone makes a crack about a certain function or something and I don't get it. So it took me a little while to get my feet under me. But I do remember the time when I sort of felt like, you know what, experience isn't always everything. 
there's a time when you have to be able to step into a job and a role and be confident enough in the work that you're doing, right? Do the hard work, do the hard things. And if you are, if you're diligent about the work that you're doing, you have a role, you can participate, you can be useful. It, it's not just a function of having been there before, right? So there was kind of a moment where I started to get comfortable and say, look, just because they've been there before doesn't mean they have all the answers. They've got a head start. But um, uh, I, I think that's an important lesson is being able to say, look, if I do my work and I take in what I can learn and try hard and, and be diligent, then I've got a role to play as well. I think that's a great, important lesson to learn. And, you know, it's critical, I think, for, for you to be successful, to feel satisfaction and also to contribute to the team. You've got to have some confidence in yourself and your abilities, uh, no matter your situation. And I, I appreciate you sharing that lesson with us. As I've said on many of these episodes, you know, we look back at these games that happened a long time ago and we have all of these fond memories, but not everything was easy. I remember working extremely hard and uh, sometimes, you know, some tough decisions had to be made. You know, what were some of the challenges that you faced in the role that you were playing and how did you overcome those challenges? You know, it, it's funny. I think part of it was my inexperience. Um, I, of course, didn't make a, you know, a habit of telling people about that. I just, you know, sort of fake it till you make it pretend that I knew what I was doing half the time. Um, you know, sometimes we had to do things where we were working with the venues who had been running World Cups and international competitions before, and there we were, the Olympic Committee kind of doing our overlay, and there I was not really knowing what I was doing in the first place, and suddenly I'm the one who has to tell folks that, you know, hey, we're doing it a little different way because we're slock. <laughs> and, and that was a little bit hard. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, again, it just kind of comes back to the idea that, you know, we've got a great team together and it might be a little uncomfortable to get some of these things going, but that was okay. Although honestly, you know, Christian, most of it, the hard work for me was also some of the most just fun times. Um, I think I really learned how to participate as a member of these event teams and how to do my own job and how to run my own little function because of the test event season in the year before the games, all of the world cups. So I had a small group that worked with me. Um, you know, Kate Purcell was there. Ross Howden was there. Maria Solomon was there on my team. And the four of us kind of were trying to figure out this whole VCC thing uh, in, in co cooperation with the telecom team and the telecom venue managers. So we were doing test events like crazy. And I think that our group, we did, I forget what the number it was, like 66 or 77 days in a row on a venue somewhere. And it sounds like hard work and long hours, but it was also the most fun I ever had. Um, I know there were days that I was waist deep in snow at four o'clock in the morning, trying to start one of those Agreco diesel generators in the dark, right? Not knowing what I was doing. Um, wondering, you know, are we going to have power this morning to run the radios? Uh, and then all day on venue. And at, at the time, actually, it's funny, I was finishing a master's degree that I had started here in Illinois. And the University of Utah was nice enough to let me take a couple of courses to finish out my hours. So I'd be up early on a mountain venue, working all day until it gets dark, down the hill, school at the U till 10, back up the hill to Park City to go to sleep and, and to start the whole thing over again the next day. It was hard, but boy, it was fun. Well, I have to ask you a question. 
you have this responsibility to deliver all of these test events. Like you said, you're on venue 77 days in a row, or however many days it is. At the same time, you have a responsibility to continue your games time preparations. And then you're also on top of that going to grad school. How do you find any semblance of balance or get a moment to just catch a breath? You know, I don't know, but that was sort of the beauty of it. And I know that some of the other folks you've talked to on your podcast have said this, the same kind of thing. There was almost no line between your personal life and your work life, because all these people, these great people that we got to meet and work with became close friends so quickly. So even if you were working late, sometimes it felt like you were socializing because it was all one little world, right? So I guess I never really felt that way. Um, It was just fun. And not only was it just fun to do the work and be with the teams, but remember what we're doing, right? We're at a ski race or we're at short track or we're at the oval. What a cool place to hang out. Did you have a particular sport that was a favorite for you? You mentioned that you were a skier and you like to go to park city every year. Was it, was it a skiing, was skiing the, you know, Alpine skiing or a particular discipline um, that was uh, one of your favorites? You know, if I had to pick one, I think long track speed skating. Um, what probably got me hooked on the games when I was a kid was Eric Hyden winning everything in 1980. And I think since then, I've just been really fascinated with that sport. Um, and that's sort of one of the coolest parts about being able to work at Salt Lake. I did everything I could to soak it in, right? I knew I was only going to be there a couple of years and I was going to have to go get a real job or do something else. So one of the coolest things about being on the organizing committee is we had access to all of the venues and we had access to participate in this stuff. So I learned to skate a little bit, right? I, I learned to skate at the oval, which is like taking golf lessons at Augusta. It's just who, who learns to skate at the best ice sheet in the world. Um, I learned to cross country ski from Olympians. I got to ski the downhill course. I got to slide the track, like all this amazing stuff. And you know, the, the, theme of this podcast for me is I can't believe they pay me for this. Yeah, it is amazing uh, when you think about it, that you get paid to do this work that is hard, but is a tremendous amount of fun. So you go and you do all this work and then it ends. (laughs) You mentioned it's a two years gig for me. I know it it has an end date. You're not going to call up the IOC and say, Hey, can you, push the games back a year because we're having so much fun. I'd like to work on it a little longer and these games end and then everybody just kind of goes their separate ways. Um, what was next in store for you, Steve? And uh, what was it like when the games ended and you needed to go on to that next part of your life? It was something, wasn't it? It's a real transition. And um, because I didn't know what I wanted to do next, I, I probably hung on a little bit longer than I should have. So I did a little bit of consulting work. I, I, you know, glommed onto a project here or there. I was actually fortunate enough, I think because of some of the things the IOC was doing with uh, their various transfer of knowledge programs, I was asked to participate in one or two of those, which was kind of neat. So I got to do some work in Torino, um, a little bit of work in Athens, later Vancouver. I only did a few days in London, but, you know, just sort of kept close, um, really almost as side work. But eventually, yes, it was time to go home and 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 leave the games world behind. And you mentioned that you learned a, a few things uh, there in Salt Lake City. You've mentioned a couple of key learnings. So, you know, any any other key learnings that you had uh, from your time there in uh, Salt Lake? 
Yeah, quite a few. In fact, I was listening to Lori Morenci Kuhn's episode uh, just this morning. And um, what a tough act to follow that will be. And she actually has a very similar story. I've been telling this story, and it's come up, of course, because of politics in recent years, but I've been telling this story since since 2001, um, when each individual function sort of had to do a bit of a prove up to Mitt and Fraser early on, whether it was you know bringing in that dot plan with the head counts or just some of the functional planning materials. I remember getting really well prepared. I'm going to present to Mitt, got to have my stuff together, got to be ready. So the day comes and I roll into the big office and I've got my booklet and my stuff and I've got materials that I'm going to hand out and I'm ready to go. I've got details, man. I know my stuff. And the way I tell the story is always the same way. I don't remember the question. Mitt took my materials, looked at the dot plan, looked at the folder, and he asked one question. And even though I don't remember what he said, I remember what was important about it. He wasn't interested in whether or not I knew the details. He was interested in whether or not I knew the strategy. What's the big goal? What's the strategic mission? Is this guy lost in his details or does he know what he's trying to deliver for these games? And that was probably the biggest management lesson that I took from Salt Lake. And it was, to me, it was sort of a really emblematic display of what it means to be a very good executive. He didn't need to know all my silly details and all my silly presentation materials. He saw right through that and got right to the heart of what's important and asked me the question that would clarify if I knew how to do it. I love that story because what it does is it shows that effective leaders can have confidence in the people that they have working for them and, and Mitt displayed some confidence there in you. And, and so I appreciate you sharing that story very much. Before we get to our final assignments, I want to make sure that we've got all the stories that you have up there in the can. Uh, <laughs> So um, what, are, what other stories do you have for us? Uh, they could be funny. They could be inspiring. They could be motivating. They could be interesting, insightful. Um, what else do you have to share with us today, Steve? What if they're none of those things? Well, we'll try. <laughs> you know, well, I'm sure, those, I'm sure there's another great adjective. So, <laughs> so. Right. maybe they're boring. No, you know, um, there was a couple of times where it was really it really felt like we in our little function got to be part of something important and something bigger than just a job, right? Because that's what we're all trying to remember at the end of the day is this is about, it's about the ideal. It's about being part of delivering, not just a great event, but an Olympic event. And hey, it's on TV. The whole world gets to see this. And all of us are trying to just contribute in one small way to be a piece of it. I remember there was, um, actually it was Paralympics is probably one of my more favorite stories there was an athlete, um, what was her name? Muffy Davis, who might've been a local Utah kid. I don't know, or maybe she was just kind of well-known as a likely to medal Paralympian, but this was uh, Alpine snow basin and Paralympics are a little more, you know, chill when it comes to sort of security and, and the way the venues are run. But I remember we got a call in the VCC. I was working on the venue that day and it was probably an event services volunteer or somebody called in and said, look, there's a guy at the gate. <laughs> And he doesn't have an accreditation. He doesn't have a ticket. He's trying to get in. He says he's the father of an athlete. I need some help. So I don't remember if it was Adam or if we'd called the venue management team or whoever it was. Um, obviously, I can't make a decision to let somebody on the venue. But we sent somebody over there and we talked to this guy and it seemed legit. This was her dad. And he either didn't have his credential or wasn't ticketed for the right date, whatever it was. This guy needed to get on the venue. So, you know, we do what we do in the VCC. We made a bunch of calls. 
we kind of got it organized and we figured out a way to get this guy into the venue, right? Sorry, Snow Basin team, if that broke the rules, but we got him in and his daughter meddled. And that was just a cool moment, like that we help be part of that. I'll never forget that day. That's a really touching story. And I really appreciate you sharing that story because ultimately that's what the games are about. You know, it's about triumph over adversity and overcoming impossible odds and ultimately celebrating it with people that mean a lot to you. So thank you very much for sharing that story, Steve. A very touching story. What about other things that came through Venue Communications Center? I mean, a lot of communications come through there. Any crazy stuff that you just... Uh, you heard and you're like, man, I can't believe what I just heard <laughs> come through here. <laughs> um, probably one or two. Um, I remember uh, Chris Crowley's story about the mishap they had at Park City. And even though that was early in the morning, there was still some chatter about that during the day that wasn't really ever explicitly said out loud about what had happened, but everybody knew something happened. So there was some of that that was that was funny. Um this wasn't an over the air funny, but uh, I remember we were working uh, in the VCC the night of opening ceremonies and, you know, everybody's really excited. It's the first day, the venue team, it's kind of their only big day uh, until closing, right? That's running in my communications trailer. And uh, uh, of course the games are going to be opened by president Bush. So we're right there in the back of house compound at rice Eccles, and the president's coming in. And the Secret Service, boy, these guys are, they know what they're doing. Well, they pull into the parking lot with a presidential motorcade at, what, 40 miles an hour? Like, they don't just drive around leisurely. They go places. So, Zoom, here comes the presidential motorcade zipping right by our, our trailer into the end of the back of house area. And one of my volunteers wants to get a picture of the president. So, this is before we had iPhones. There were these nice little flat devices. Cameras were big and pointy with Zoom lenses. So... Here's my guy sticking his camera out the window of the trailer to try and get a picture of the president. That took about two seconds before the Secret Service came through the door. <laughs> it's not a good idea to point things at the president. Don't do that. They made Especially that if clear. they're pointy and metallic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that shut the whole operation down for a minute. It took us a minute to kind of reset and get it together once they figured out it was just a volunteer with the camera. Uh, but you can't blame them. I mean, they're just so excited, right? They're pumped up. It's opening ceremony night and everybody's just thrilled to be there. Yep. I, yep. I, I understand where that's coming from. And I would have. Volunteers were, were great. Um, that's a, that's another part of the experience that you can't really forget. I mean, I remember we've all seen it. You know, you roll into a venue early morning and some of the volunteers are working transportation. They're working in the parking lanes and it's cold and it's dark and they still have a great attitude. Um, and I think that that's probably also a testament to the locals there in, in Salt Lake and in Utah. Um, the spirit of volunteerism was really cool. I haven't seen that anywhere else um, in in my community here at home or anywhere else. Just it was that was really something special is the way the volunteers got into the got into the action of the games. And they worked hard. They had it wasn't just, you know, show up and for a couple of hours. It was a lot of prep, a lot of time on venue. They did great. It's so interesting that you say that because sometimes it's hard to manage expectations. Volunteers want to be sometimes in the center of the action and near the field of play and by the athletes or, you know, something like that. And when you tell them, hey, we've got a great opportunity for you to to work here in the T3 <laughs> parking right. lot 
right. <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it can be a little bit demoralizing, but I think our volunteer team did a great job to manage their expectations and keep them super motivated. And I do think that you're right. People here in Salt Lake City and in the state of Utah, they have this volunteer culture and um, they will do just about anything for anybody. And um, they were they were fantastic. They were wonderful. Agreed. All right, Steve, before we get to our final assignments, anything else on your list? No, I'm ready to go. What, what are the, what All are the right. final questions? Okay, so we'll wrap us up with three questions. The first question for you is about music. Is there a song or maybe a, a musical group, an artist perhaps, that uh, you listened to back in the day? Could have been commuting to work or you may have heard a song during a competition, whatever it is. And when you hear it today, it takes your mind right back to Salt Lake 2002. Yeah, you know, I, I I thought about this a little bit before jumping on the podcast today. And what I remembered, um, I had actually forgotten about this. I, it, I'd be reminded of it. But um, after 9-11, or well, sort of when 9-11 had happened, uh, U2 was on tour, on a worldwide tour. And they had done a North American leg. And they were coming back. And they played Delta Center. Um, I think it was, what would that have been? It was like October and November of 2001. Um, and... I don't remember the song, but if I remember right, they had, um, you know, a production element on the stage that allowed them to project the names in a scroll of all of the people who uh, who lost their lives on September 11th. So, you know, we all went out to see you two do their thing and, and wound up having um, really another emotional moment. Trying to remember. Um, you know, having them remember all the folks who had, uh, who had been killed on that day. And, uh, so sure. That's, I think from a musical point of view, that's what I'll remember from Salt Lake. Well, I say coincidence. I think not because just last night I was talking with another slot colleague on doing, on doing one of these podcasts. And that was, that was one of her most important memories was that concert. And she talked about those names scrolling and the song that was playing then was walk on. Yes. Uh, the song that Thank was playing. You. And uh, yeah, a lot of our friends at Slock, I did not go um, having four small children and <laughs> a wife that's like, I need help. So I did not go to that concert, but I, so many people that worked at Slock did go to that concert and it was a tremendous, memorable experience. So I appreciate you very much sharing that experience as well and really reinforcing that memory. Let's talk about the food now, shall we, Steve? Uh, you went skiing at Park City every year, but you know it could have been a place. And you went to all the venues, so you you got all over. But was there a particular haunt that you like to frequent there in downtown Salt Lake City, or in Park City, or elsewhere there in Utah? So, listening to a bunch of other podcast episodes that you had done, uh, everybody's mentioned the Globe and the Lazy Moon and whatever the place was that the trolley wings or whatever it was. Um, and okay, I'm like, I, I have to remember someplace else. And this one might be might be a weird one. Um, it's still there, but it's changed. On 224 heading into Park City, there was this old Texaco station, <laughs> right? The Blue Roof Texaco station. Uh, I think it's not a Texaco anymore. But yeah, it's a gas station. And there was a woman who ran this little deli and sandwich counter in there. And I'm telling you, these were the best sandwiches you could get. They had fresh bread. And they would make everything in front of you. She used to do this thing where she would tear the pepperoncinis and put them in the sandwich. Fantastic. I don't know why that sticks with me so much. Um, I think because, you know, one of my favorite days, back to I can't believe they pay me for this. I, we were doing some kind of planning meeting up at Deer Valley. 
And, uh, you know, I drove up to do whatever my part was. And, um, you know, I'm there with Donna and the venue team. We had a little talk in the, in the Deer Valley Lodge, uh, I think down the, the one down at the bottom. And we finished the meeting. I go out to the car and I'm wearing, you know, khakis and probably a slock, you know, button down shirt or something. Go out to the car, throw my boots on, grab my skis, make a run, right? Probably wearing a test event jacket or something. Jump back in the car, heading out of town, grab my favorite sandwich and back to the office. In the sunshine. What a day. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. The Texaco gas station sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know that. And, you know, Deer Valley, speaking of Deer Valley, Deer Valley Turkey Chili um, was if you've never had it, it's their super whatever famous secret recipe. And I've been actually I've been kind of recreating that and making it home ever since. Um, so my daughter and I, it's one of our favorite things to do in the cold weather months is we we still whip up a big pot of turkey, turkey, Deer Valley turkey chili whenever we can. I love it. it. You have a partner in crime. I just spoke <laughs> with Caroline Shaw, who is the chief communications officer for the games. We just did a podcast a few days ago. It's not yet aired. She also mentioned the turkey chili yeah. at Deer Valley as being one of her favorites. And she has replicated that recipe. She's, she loves it. The turkey chili. Yeah. An absolute favorite there, um, Deer Valley. I really appreciate you going from the gas station, <laughs> which is kind of the lowest of the right. low. To the poshest of the posh of Deer Valley. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. To conclude our episode today, Steve, why don't you give us that favorite Olympic memory? It's something that uh, just really warms your heart, you know, takes you back. Every time you think of it, uh, you know, it's that goosebump moment for you for the games. Could be a competition, could have been something behind the scenes. It could have been something that happened during test event season before games time or something that happened during games time, whatever it is. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to focus on just one of those. And for me, the thing that I tend to remember the most are the sort of um, underdog winners that medaled or even won gold in Salt Lake. Um, uh, it, it was just such a great feeling to know that, you know, being part of the organizing committee, that we were some small part of those victories and we got to observe those and witness those. So I remember, of course, Sarah Hughes just killing it on the ice and winning gold. Um, Jim Shea, right? That whole third generation Olympian story, pulling out the win by one one hundredth or whatever it was on the track. Um, I remember uh, Janica Kostelic, who was the Croatian alpine skier, who was sort of, you know, out of nowhere, wins a couple of medals. Um, uh, we had Vanetta Flowers, who was the first African-American woman to ever win Winter Olympic gold happened at our event, which was just great. So those are the kind of things that I remember. Um, Elisa Kamplin, the Australian aerial skier who wins gold. Those things were were so unexpected and so exciting, even more than just your average uh, Olympic win. Watching those underdogs win at our games was really, really great. I really appreciate you sharing the underdog stories. I think all of us can relate to the underdogs because sometimes we feel like the underdogs in our own way. and it's always joyous and cathartic to see these underdogs pull off unexpected victories. And so I appreciate you very much, Steve, uh, sharing that with us. All right, Steve, it's been, uh, it's been great fun. Thank you so much for taking time to share your stories with us. Now, if people want to reconnect with you, if they want to know what you're doing these days or want to share some Olympic memories with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. 
Uh, I can, you know, my email is on Gmail. I'm Steve O'Connor USA at Gmail. So say hello. All right. Fantastic. Thank you again so much, Steve. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll see you next week. Steve, thank you. Christian, thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. 